Tonight we're talking about predestination and free will. We are continuing in our study called Wrestling with God. And we're covering some topics that Christians really face or maybe even seekers or skeptics face when it comes to God. It makes it hard to believe in Him, hard to trust Him. First topic we talked about was unanswered prayer. What do you do when it feels like God's not listening? Second topic we did last time was uh, evil and suffering. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God permit suffering and evil in this world? And all those teachings are actually available on our podcast. You can get that also in the link in our bio on Instagram or gradientya.com if you ever want to listen to those things. Or if you want, you can always share that with somebody who's a skeptic or a seeker, and you never know if it could encourage somebody. So keep that in the back of your mind too. Bring them out here to Gradient Young Adults, somebody who's got those questions. We love being able to tackle the hard questions. And uh, actually, next week, we're going to talk about biblical sexuality. So that is a very obviously controversial topic, and we're going to be talking about it here. Hopefully, be able to shed some light and uh, approach it with biblical wisdom. So tonight, we're going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. One of the most popular verses in the Bible. We talked about kind of the prior verses last week, but we also want to address these ones tonight. So let's do it. Paul the Apostle writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray that tonight, as we approach this text with humility, that you would help us, Lord, to really understand your will and your purposes. And I pray that people really leave encouraged tonight, that they would know, Lord, that they are chosen. And because you have chosen them, that, that frees us up to pursue you and to, and to love you. And so, Lord, we just pray for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom tonight. Open up our eyes so that we could see your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. These two verses are some of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. This is like the coffee mug verse, right? We know that all things work together for good. Everybody loves that verse. But it's kind of like, well, what does it mean that in verse 29, he foreknew... He also predestined people to be conformed to the image of his son. What, what does that mean? And so people ask you, do you believe in predestination? And it's like, well, if you're a Christian, you should probably believe the Bible. And the Bible says that God predestines people. So I, you probably should believe in predestination. So what does that actually mean? Well, these verses are verses about God's sovereignty Right? And the whole purpose is that you would have peace and assurance that God's really taking all of the cosmos, all of the universe and working it somehow together for good. And not just good for his own glory, which is true, but also for the good of his people too. So how does that work? Well, some observations we want to make about these verses before we kind of just kind of dig in deep. The first is, he says, all things that God has ordered all things to contribute to the good. 
So what does that mean? That means that the world is not chaos, that the Big Bang Theory, that things just sporadically, sporadically and spontaneously just sprung into existence can't be true. And when we look at science, we might extrapolate backwards and say like, okay, there was a finite beginning, which is great. But here the Bible is saying that everything was caused by this creator for a reason. So all things, even the things that you think are just insignificant, God's working those things together for the good. And it's according to his purpose, which means that God has a purpose for persons and the cosmos. And that means that God is not an existentialist. Now, existentialism is a philosophical term, which basically just states that existence precedes essence. So that you exist and there's no prior meaning or substance to you. There is no soul. When you're created, that's when your meaning begins. That's what the existentialist philosophers would say, like Jean-Paul Sartre. So he would say that because there is no God, man is actually free. So what Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher would say as an existentialist would be that you, if you believe in God, you're limited because you can only be what this creator wants you to be. Whereas for me, I can be whoever I wanna be. And that's kind of the mantra you see today, right? You are a human that has the potential to become anything that you want to be. But actually what you see, and we'll probably see this later on in the study, is that's not freeing, that's terrifying. That means it's up to me to just figure out like what I wanna do, but how do I know what I wanna do? Because when I dig down deep into my desires, I see all these conflicting desires. And that's how I lived my life when I was in my 20s. It's like, well, I could be a lot of things. I wanted to be a mechanic at one point. I wanted to be a graphic designer at one point. I wanted to be a photographer at one point. I wanted to be an actor at one point. These are all real things. I'm not making these things up. I did an internship at my high school for computer science because I wanted to be a computer programmer. So I'm, I'm just, I, I could see myself doing that. And, and just, I found myself more confused because it was up to me. But here's something that's wonderful. And this is, this is what I think is really amazing about being a Christian. That when you believe in God, a creator, that he created you for a purpose, which means that number one, the pressure's not on you to figure out yourself or define yourself or whatever. You just connect yourself to your creator. But also you find yourself in places that you never dreamed of yourself of being. The Bible says, that my ways are higher than your ways, as high as the heaven is from the earth. That much, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways and, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what does that mean? The greatest, that, um, the most powerful that your imagination can be, the highest that you can dream, God dreams higher. And he has a plan that's bigger than what you can plan. So the, the wonderful thing is I find myself doing something that I'm doing like right now that I never dreamed of myself of being. I never thought I'd be like speaking in front of people. I was always like, who would want to listen to me to teach the Bible? So there's never, never a second thought, but you follow Jesus and he transforms you into the person he's created you to be, which is wonderful. So anyway, all that to say that God does have a purpose. And actually by you tapping into that purpose, you find yourself in all these exciting places where you never dreamed of being. But it also says, Romans 8, now verse 29, that he foreknew for whom he foreknew, which means that God has foreknowledge about future events and peoples. 
which means that the Bible doesn't teach open theism, which is the belief that the future is open and God doesn't know what the future is like because the future, so this is a kind of complicated thing, but basically open theists believe that God knows all facts, but the future is not yet real. So therefore God would not know future facts because they don't exist yet. So they would say that the future is completely open, um, which is confusing to me why people believe that, but that's what they believe. But here, the Bible says that God does have foreknowledge about the future. He knows things. It's not just like God made a hypothesis about one day that if he sent Jesus into the world, that Jesus would die on a cross. And it was like a great guess. It's like, I'm pretty sure that people want to crucify him. God knew that people would crucify him. It also says that not only did he foreknow, but verse 29, he also predestined, which means that God had chosen and predestined the sanctification of those that love God before that they are born. Which means that the Bible is not teaching universalism. It's not teaching that everybody will go to heaven one day. I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter nine, one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible. Romans nine, verse 15. If you want to just flip the page, it says, for, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I, have, I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So, this promise can seem terrifying, right? Because you think, well, what if I'm not chosen? What about free will? Like, it's saying that some people are chosen and some people are not. Some people have mercy, some people don't. Some people have compassion, some people don't. What do we do? Well, this is where I, I love Pastor Lloyd's advice. He says, whenever you confront a hard passage in the Bible, here's the best advice. Maybe some of you know it. Just keep reading. Don't give up on that one passage. If you ever get confused or stuck, the Bible interprets itself. There are other passages that help you to interpret other passages. So keep on reading. And we're gonna go deep on that tonight. So hopefully, even though this is a little bit more of a deeper study, I hope that this is helpful and gives you greater assurance of not only your salvation, but the heart of God to win uh, all peoples to himself. So there's two different views that are kind of the majority two different camps. One's called Calvinism and the other is Arminianism. And we're not going to go too deep into like what those specific groups believe because there are subdivisions of what people believe in the Arminian camp and the Calvinist camp. And I don't want to like misrepresent those different camps because maybe some people are here tonight that are Calvinist, some people are Arminian. And we love those people. They're, they're part of our family. And, you know, it's not a salvation issue, but they do have some deeply uh, different views on God's sovereignty and man's free will. On the Calvinist side, there's more of an emphasis towards God's sovereignty. And on the Arminian side, there's more emphasis on man's free will. So just letting you know some of those terms, let's go into the first term uh, regarding biblical predestination. And that's the term called election. Maybe you've heard this before, election. And we're not talking about parliament. We're not talking about Congress. We're not talking about the president. Biblical term of election. You might find that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where it talks about elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion, meaning the scattered Christians in the early church who were persecuted. He's encouraging them and says, hey, listen, as you're being persecuted, hunted down for what you believe, I want you to know something, that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that word elect just means this, picked out or chosen. Or you can just think about like elect is like select. So it's like you're selective. God selected them. So even as they feel discouraged and scattered and like maybe God's forgotten about me. I'm being persecuted, hunted down for my faith. And Peter says, no, no, no. You may feel isolated, but you are selected by God according to his foreknowledge. And this is why we need to preach the doctrine of election because so many people feel like they're just lost in the crowd. They're just like, well, I'm, yes, God loves the world, but how do I know God loves me? Think about it this way. If you're an artist, you're a painter, you choose the medium that you're gonna use to communicate your art very carefully, not arbitrarily. You don't go, well, I just think I'll use a computer this time. I think I'm just gonna use a brush or oil, whatever. You choose it purposefully depending on the type of art that you want to create. A musician will choose, do I wanna make this acoustic? Do I wanna have a live band? How do I, and they, they think about that intentionally because they are looking to communicate the message very specifically. And we've talked about this before. If God wanted to, all he would have had to do to communicate his gospel message is right in the sky or use angels, messengers of God to say, hey, by the way, I want you guys to know that Jesus Christ died for you and you just believe on him, you'll be saved. He could have done it that way, but he's chosen specific people to carry that message, which means that you can reach people that I can't reach. And that's part of the beautiful thing about being chosen by God is you see yourself and you're just like, I don't look like everybody else. And that's because God's chosen you specifically so you can reach other people that other people cannot reach. Which means that there's no part in the body of Christ that doesn't have a purpose. You know, they, they talk about the appendix in your body. And for the longest time, people didn't know it had a purpose. It does have a purpose. Every part of the body of Christ has a purpose. It's like the illustration I've used a billion times. If you have a 2,000 piece puzzle, right? And we just kind of threw it on the floor. And I, I looked at the puzzle and you looked at the puzzle. Some of you like are crazy enough to, to buy these puzzles and try to put them together. But anyone who's put a puzzle together knows like if one person, like one of my little kids came by and just grabbed a piece and ran out that door and you were almost done with the puzzle, it doesn't matter that they're a cute little kid. You would chase after that kid. Like what's wrong with you, right? And what if my kids said to you just like, well, you already have 1,999 pieces. Like what, what does it matter if I just take one piece, right? It would drive you nuts if you lost that one piece because the puzzle's not complete until every piece fits. And you are a puzzle piece in God's grand design, in his master plan, in his story. As he's, he's writing his story of creation, you know, we have a book of life and your name is in the book of life. You have a role to play in God's story. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. 
So we can know and have confidence that God has chosen you for a purpose. And that's why we need to talk about it. Now, some camps might define election as this, this concept called double predestination, which is that God chooses some people to be saved and then chooses some people equally in the same kind of a way to go to hell for all of eternity. And I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And so to me, if you choose specific people to not go to heaven, it's kind of like you're walking by a pool that has this huge do not enter sign, right? Right over the pool. And then you see two drowning kids in this pool. And you walk by and you're like, I mean, they were told not to go in the pool. They're both there. Well, I'm going to take one of them out just because I'm a generous person. And they don't deserve to be saved, but I'm just going to take them out. And you just leave the other one behind. And then everybody looks at him and goes, what a great guy. He saved one. Isn't it great that he chose to save one? I would say if he has a power and ability to save both, he probably should save both. And that's the problem that I have with the concept of double predestination. It's how do you have a loving God who chooses people regardless of what they feel or believe or anything like that to go to hell for eternity? Now, this means on that camp, some people would have uh, this definition of free will called compatibilism, which they, I don't want to go too far into this, but basically it's the belief that free will is doing what you want to do. Not free will is ability to choose otherwise, but free will is ability to choose what you want to do. But if that's the case, which may sound fine on the surface, if that's the case, then they could say, well, it was your free choice to stay in your sin or choose hell or things like that, even though that desire was given to you. So we can talk more about that later. But anyway, so the problem I have with this is they might take terms like foreknowledge, election, predestination, define it in their own way, and then say, you don't believe in predestination? You don't believe in election? You don't believe in these biblical concepts? And then you start despairing because you look at the Bible and like, well, those words are in the Bible. It says elect, it says predestined, it says chosen, but I definitely don't believe in that. So I would say a good definition is found by Dr. Norman Geisler, who's, who's passed, but he's spoken here at the church a couple times. And what he would say is that God never predestines anyone contrary to their free will, but elects only those he foreknew would accept his saving grace. So this is where you have 1 Peter 1, 2 says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that foreknowledge being the people who would freely choose him back. I know I, I might be losing some people here, so I, I will try to like slow it down a little bit. So just bear with me. But here's the thing. So we do believe in predestination, but we also believe in man's free will. Because without man's free will, the biggest problem I have with this and this biggest reason why I'm not on that camp is that ultimately, if God's the only free will being in the universe, that means that God is ultimately responsible for sin. There's no other free will actor in order to be able to sit down and be like, hey, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with doing whatever I want to do because God is ultimately in control. Responsibility implies control, right? So if, if I'm looking at my kids and a robber actually snuck in and for whatever reason tied up all my kids and I told them to clean up the room, I walk into the room and all, all four of them are sitting there, including the baby. They're all tied up in the room. And I told them, I told you to clean up the room. How dare you leave this room a mess? 
and they can't move. They're not responsible to clean the room. And I probably should untie them and all those things too. But if they don't have control, how could they be responsible? I mean, we don't know anything like that. And so usually this is where people go, well, we just don't really understand God's ways. And it's like, that, that's never a good answer for me, right? Like we may not be able to fully comprehend God's ways, but we can always apprehend God's ways. So Norman Geiser would say, if there's a rope standing from me, like extending from me to eternity in the heavens, right? You may not fully comprehend the length of that rope, but you can always apprehend it. And so I think that anytime somebody says, oh, well, I don't know if we can, it's just going to be a mystery. No one can understand it. I think that's just a cop out. I think all of us can gradually grow in the knowledge of God and the grace of God, but we may not be able to fully explain it until we go to heaven. So anyway, you might at this point be disagreeing with me, which is fine. We can talk about it afterwards. And I'm telling you, this is not a salvific issue, but there's a point to why I'm sharing this tonight. Because I think so many people get discouraged because they feel like maybe God didn't choose me. Maybe God doesn't love me. And we'll get to that in a second. But another illustration. So responsibility implies control, right? So if there's a drone airstrike sent by the military into a foreign land and it's shooting and, and killing and getting rid of the enemy, the person responsible is whoever's controlling the drone. You won't look at the robot drone and say, well, we need to punish the drone for what it did, right? It has no responsibility because it doesn't have any control. And if man doesn't have any free will ability, it's hard to say how he would be responsible for his actions. And, well, even if you say he's a little bit responsible, right? So if, like, if there's a mob boss that's, that's um, trying to kill somebody and hire somebody else to kill that person, both people might be responsible. But you don't eliminate the guy at the top from responsibility. And instead, all throughout the Bible, we see that people are expected to make free choices. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Without free will, that verse makes no sense. Don't harden your hearts, even though God's the one who's hardening your heart and making you unable to accept him. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, four verse 11 says, let us do our best to enter that rest, but if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. So there's imperatives all throughout scripture saying, today, believe on him. Do not harden your hearts. Today, if you call upon Jesus' name, you will be saved. All throughout scripture, you see that, right? And all those verses wouldn't really make any sense if at the end of it, you don't have any free will. So then maybe you're saying, well, how is it possible for God to be in ultimate control, but then allow man to have free will and free choice? Well, I'll give you two examples, once again from Norman Geiser, because I think he has a great book on this called Chosen But Free. And what he would say is, um, think about, hypothetically, there's a guy who wants to get married, and he's equally in love with two different women. Strange, but just hypothetical, not a real scenario. So this man has two women that he loves equally, but he knows if he proposes to one of them, she'll say no, proposes to the other, she'll say yes. So then he proposes to the woman he knows will say yes in return. Guys, I got great advice, great dating advice. You can ask for it, I'm gonna give it to you. If you wanna date a woman, be confident that she's going to say yes in return. I think that's great advice. So that, I mean, like you have no control. If you just somehow have foreknowledge that she would say yes, 
that doesn't mean that you controlled in any way or impacted her decision. Also, we can talk about, let's say that you're watching a replay of a recent UFC fight, because that's the sport I'm gonna choose for the day because I'm just so out of touch with every other sport. Let's say you're watching a, a fight, a replay, and your friend hasn't seen the fight, and you obviously have. As you're watching that replay, and you're just like one of those annoying people that's just like, oh, he's gonna throw, the, you gotta watch this. This punch is gonna be awesome. And then like the guy gets knocked out, and then your friend looks at you and goes, how did you do that? Are you controlling him? You're like, no, we're just watching a replay. I just know what's gonna happen. So just think about foreknowledge in that kind of way. Like God can know the future without having any impact, well, not say any impact, but without maintaining control over those individual choices. People can still have free will and God just knows the future, just like we can know the past if we watch a replay. And what you see is all throughout the Bible, we see that God decrees sovereignly, simultaneously, while people freely choose. Here's two examples. When Jesus goes to the cross, Luke chapter 22, verse 22, the son of man will go as it has been decreed. Okay, so sovereign, but woe to that man who betrays him. So there's a man who, Judas Iscariot, freely chose to betray Jesus, even though it was decreed. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, maybe the most popular verse is when Joseph is talking to his brothers after he was betrayed, his brothers go, oh no, Joseph, I didn't know it was you. I'm so sorry. I can't believe we did all, this, all these things to you. And Joseph says, well, you intended to harm me, right, of your own free choice. However, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So even though they freely chose to betray Joseph, Joseph says, don't worry, God worked it all together for good sovereignly. So now, where does that leave us? That brings us back to the Peter problem. Because we, now we got to talk about, like, but how does he do that? I, I mean, I may not be able to fully understand in this life, but I think I can help you a little bit. So the Peter problem. So Jesus says to Peter, tonight you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. Well, does this mean that God's forcing Peter? And says, well, now you have no choice. Now you're going to deny me. And Peter's just like staying up all night like, when's it going to happen? Or does Peter have the ability to prove God wrong? Like, don't worry, Jesus, I'm going to prove you wrong. It's going to be your first sin, right? Well, here, here's the answer. I surely believe that what we see here is not that he was limited, right? Peter was not prevented from making a free choice. He still had free choice. However, this is what happened. Because it's foreknowledge, the answer is that Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Think about that. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Peter, when he's thinking about himself, he goes, Jesus, I would never deny you. And Jesus knows, no, I know the exact circumstance in which you're going to deny me. I mean, we make predictions like this all the time, right? You have a friend who doesn't listen to your advice ever. And just like, I just know she's the one man. And like, we're going to be happy forever. I just feel in my heart. And they start like dating and you just know, like you don't tell them, but you just know it's going to be a train wreck. And afterwards they look at you and like, oh man, just like totally didn't work out. And you, you want to say like, told you so, right? But the fact that marriage, like you knew your friend. You knew what they were going to do. And then doesn't it make more sense that the God of the universe would know us better than we know ourselves? 
He knew the situations in which you'll falter and fail and mess up. And here's, here's the thing that you don't want to miss because this might, may be the thing that you need to take away from this message. Because God knows you better than you know yourself, that means through his sovereignty, he can prepare you for the trials that you're not ready for yet. I'll prove it to you. This is why in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says, in this context, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So get this, everyone look up here. God sovereignly works anticipating our future failures. Here's where the doctrine of election really should encourage us because God knows your breaking point. This is why the Bible says God will not tempt you beyond what you're able, but always provide the way of escape because God knows if there's a point in which you might turn away from God, that you would reject God and lose your salvation, God knows that breaking point and he keeps you just within it so that you can trust him. He strengthens your faith. He knows Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He knows that Satan wants to destroy your faith. But here's what you, you can know is that God is sovereignly holding you in his hand and will not allow you to be snatched out of it. So what does that mean? That means it's our responsibility to commit ourselves to him, but it's God's responsibility to keep us. It's our responsibility to commit ourselves and say, God, I surrender to you. And then it's up to him to keep us within his grasp. John 10, verse 20, uh, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love this. So, you know, as an illustration, think about, about baby Nova. She's gonna be a year next month, which is crazy. And she's at that point right now where she's like trying to stand up on her own and trying to walk. If she's ever gonna walk, I need to allow her to try but I'll never allow her to try to the point that she's gonna hurt herself. So as she's taking those first steps, my hands are next to her. I want her to make the attempt, but if she falls, I'm there to catch her. And your heavenly father wants you to take attempts, to take steps of faith, to take the risks, but knowing like the psalmist says that he enlarges my path underneath me so I will not stumble. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death right? And it's that narrow path you're trying to walk. And when you're about to slip, he enlarges your path so you don't. But this is also important to understand because of this last reason. Since God knows our future, we can be confident that he's preparing us for our future. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse one, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. There's so much that we're experiencing right now that's rocking us. We're stumbling all over the place because we're not in the word of God. We're, we don't know his words. God's written this book. So when the trials come, you should not be made to stumble. Jesus says, continuing on, John 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Speaking to his disciples saying, you're gonna be persecuted. They're gonna try to kill you. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when the time comes, you look back and go, oh wait, Jesus told me this was gonna happen. 
so I can have full confidence I am in God's will, that I'm doing exactly what he wants me to do. He's gonna strengthen me through it. So when I tell you, like right now, the Bible says all who desire to live in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, like we talked about last week, you know when the trial comes, like we just had a trial just this past week, you know, like one of my, my SUV is in, uh, in the shop right now because fixed it. Then two days later, the water pump broke at, um, whatchamacallit, at Wendy's right here around the corner. And so we're out of the car that fits the whole family. So that I'm driving my wife's car into Brooklyn today. And as I'm driving, I leave the house and then that car breaks down too. And it's just so like, we're out of a car that can transport our family. And I was thinking, it's like, oh, man, you're just at the point where it's just, you're frustrated. But I was like, you know what? It is good that God like broke down the car while I didn't have any kids with me on this hot day like today and didn't have the baby with me. That like the car was able to start again 15 minutes after waiting. I was able to drive to the shop. I don't have any cars, but like, I just know that the reason why these things are happening is because God is preparing me for the spiritual battle that I'm not in yet. There's a verse where uh, in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah's complaining to the Lord saying, this is too much for you, I can't handle it. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says, if you're, if you, um, what's he say? <laughs> what's the verse? He basically says, paraphrase, because I'm not gonna quote it right. He says, if you are getting weary by the foot soldiers, how will you ever run with horses? That's his encouragement. He doesn't go like, all right, Jeremiah, don't worry, I'm, I'm with you. He goes like, really? You're tired now? How are you ever gonna be ready for the future? And the fact of the matter is when we are so stuck being depressed about the situation we're in now and not seeing God's hand and sovereign hand in it, then we won't be prepared for the good things he has in front of us. So if you're at this point, you're like, well, we need to get back to the question of like salvation. Like, how do I know that I'm chosen? If you're ever afraid, you need to know what the evidence is of your salvation. The Bible makes it plain in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. The Bible says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The evidence of our salvation is the Holy Spirit working inside of us. That doesn't mean that you're perfect, but that means that like, you know God's Spirit's living inside of you, which means that you're grieved by sin now. Like before you could just enjoy sin and not think, not think twice about it, but now you can't. Like the evidence of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart is that you can't go out and party like you used to. There's something inside of you that's not satisfied with sin. You're grieved by it. You have that Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart. So if you have that, then you can be sure that God is working in you. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of that future glory that we are to receive. And if you're in doubt, the fact of the matter is you do have a free will choice to choose him. And when you do, you realize that God, even before you asked or you surrender your life to him, that he has been working on you, pursuing you, and seeking after you. That's why the Bible says in John 3, 16, right? For God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son. That salvation is truly available to all. So what does that mean? So what, what does that mean practically? Well, the purpose of this is verse 29 of Romans chapter eight, going back to the text. He also predestined us 
For what purpose? To be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. So that, that God chooses us, not just to go to heaven when we die, but he's working in us to make us more like Jesus. So then your question is, well, then practically, like, why is it that it feels like I can't actually choose God? Like, I'm still struggling with sin. If we genuinely wish to do good, why is it that we don't feel like we're actually capable of doing good? And some of you may have addictions. You might have sins that you just, it's just, you're always repeating those same sins. Why does that happen? And where is free will in all that? That's why St. Augustine would always say like, it doesn't feel like I have free will when I sin. It feels like I'm a slave to sin. And when you sin, it's not like somebody, like a demon, like took possession of your body and then you started like sinning. It felt natural to do it. It felt right to do it. You did it even without thinking. So what does that mean? Well, this is where, once again, we can know that election gives us confidence. John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And when, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so what is that fruit? It's the fruit of, not just fruit of the Spirit, in context is the fruit of obedience. That you would exhibit the character traits of Jesus Christ the more that you abide in him. The more that you spend time with him, the more I spend time with my wife, the more I react and talk like my wife. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more that you start to react like Jesus does. And so if we act in that sin nature, it's just the question of who are you feeding? Are you feeding that sin nature? Are you feeding the nature of the spirit? Andrew Murray, a popular uh, writer and author, once said this, what can be the reason that we see a thing is wrong and strive against it and we cannot conquer it? What can be the reason that we have a hundred times prayed and vowed, yet here we are still living a mingled, divided, half-hearted life? To those two questions, there is one answer. It is self that is the root of the whole trouble. And therefore, if anyone asks me, how can I get rid of this compromised life? The answer would not be, you must do this or that or the other thing. The answer would be a new life from above, the life of Christ must take the place of the self-life. Then alone can we be conquerors. This is why this is so important because so many people think Christianity is all about behavior modification. And it's not, it's about heart transformation. You need the life of Christ to come in and invade that life of the flesh, to get rid of that old life and say, Jesus, I surrender fully to you. In fact, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like this. If you feel like a slave to sin, it's because God said you're either slave to sin or slave to righteousness. So it's almost like the only free will choice you really have is surrender to Jesus. Because when you surrender to Jesus, he gives you the freedom to follow him and live the life of the spirit. That's why Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, well, what do I, I got to do to, you know, be able to live the life of the spirit? What do I have to do to be accepted by God? And Jesus says, it's not about something you do. You got to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, well, like, how do you do that? How do you, you crawl back in your mom's womb and you get born again? And Jesus goes, that's really creepy. I've never heard of that in my life and don't ever say that ever again, right? She says, no, I'm saying spiritually. And the reason why he uses the metaphor of being born again is because you did nothing to be born. You didn't say like, okay, so I want to be born in the 90s. I think that's going to be really cool. So I'm going to tell my parents that 
I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna eventually, somehow the storks are gonna bring me down to earth and arrive here, right? When you were born, you had no action. It just happened, right? To be born again is not something you do, it's something that the Spirit does in you. And it can only happen by your surrendering to Jesus. We all need to be saved. So when you find yourself struggling with sin, the answer is not do this or do that. It's to be surrendered. It's to say, God, I need you. I don't have control. I don't have the ability to save myself. I need you to save me again. It's almost like if you've ever had a, a Gatorade bottle and you finished it and then you're like, oh, I'll just refill it with water. And then everything tastes like Gatorade after that. You need a whole new bottle. That's what you need. You don't need to just like, all right, I'm just going to just redo it. Just all right, read the Bible and just go back to my sin. You need a new life from above. And that's the way that we have the life of the Spirit. So if you miss anything tonight, here's what you have to know. And listen, if you are a person who's more on the sovereignty side, more on the free will side, free grace side, we're all family. So I hope I didn't offend you too much. But I hope that you know, like the Bible does teach both sovereignty, free will, responsibility. I think all of us can agree on that. And what we need to take away from both sides is that, yes, you have the choice to surrender to God today. And you can also know that God has chosen you, picked you out, and knows your future failures, knows your weaknesses, knows your frailties. And he's going to make sure that you make it. But the question is, have you chosen him? Have you surrendered your life to him? And once you do, you can't have the confidence. You have to waver every day and be like, oh, I don't, did I lose my salvation today? I don't know if God loves me today. You just know you're a child of God. You've been adopted in the family. And once you're in, you can never be thrown out. Let's pray.